I'm Cassie Gillespie, and you're listening to Welcome to the Field. Welcome to the Field is a podcast of targeted trainings for child welfare professionals. And we often focus on the experience of child welfare workers out in the field. However, for the last two episodes of our season, we want to bring you a different lens and a different focus and shine a spotlight on the caregiver experience. So today's episode is a special episode specifically designed for kin, foster, and adoptive caregivers here in Vermont. Enjoy! Hello, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in today. I'm Janine Beaudry. And I'm Sharon O'Neill. We're kin, foster, and adoptive family training specialists with the Vermont Child Welfare Training Partnership. We'll be your host today as we talk about taking care of your children and youth who've been impacted by trauma and taking care of yourself through the years. Joining us today is Kathy Frost-Brooks, who's the parent of three daughters, all now young adults. One daughter was born to her and two daughters were born into different families, and Kathy brought them into her family by fostering, then adopting them through family services. In addition to that, Kathy has been a family services resource coordinator for over six years, supporting other kin, foster, and adoptive caregivers along the same journey. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your rich experience with us today, Kathy. Thank you for having me. Our listeners are a mixture of child protection professionals and kin, foster, and adoptive caregivers. Could you give um, a description for us of the kind of the major landmarks on your journey to becoming an adoptive parent and a resource coordinator? Sure. So for me, uh, my birth daughter was born in December of 1997. Um, I was a single parent for 22 years, so um, kind of did this journey by myself. Um, So decided that um, wanted to add to my family Mm -hmm. and so looked into doing foster care, um, started taking the classes um, that were required for all mandatory foster parents um, in the spring of 2007. Mm -hmm. And in that class met another couple who had a daughter that was, we figured out um, their child and my daughter were like two and a half months apart. Um, And they asked me if I would do respite. And I said, sure, why not? Um, So... My now uh, oldest daughter came and started doing respite in the spring of 2007. Mm -hmm. Um, After her being with us two times for respite, she very loudly proclaimed that she (laughs) wanted to live there forever. Um, (laughs) So we talked to her social worker about making that happen. Um, So she came to live with us full time in the fall of 2007, right before school started. Um, her adoption was finalized in August of 2008. Um, so took a little less than a year, um, for adoption for her. Uh, my youngest daughter, um, was placed with us four days before Christmas in 2012. Mm -hmm. Um, so she was with, uh, the two oldest and myself for seven months, Um, And she went to another foster home in July of 2013. 
Mm-hmm. Throughout that time that she was gone for about 16 months, um, throughout that time, we did respite for her. You know, we hung out on holidays and vacations um, and in contacting, and you know, being with her, um, really talked about that it, it wasn't going well in that foster home. And so her social worker called me. Uh, it was about October of 2014 and asked if I would consider being a forever placement for her again. Mm-hmm. Um, so talked to my two oldest and we all decided, you know, absolutely she needed to come back to our house. Um, so she came back in November of 2014 um, and her adoption was finalized in May of 2015. So uh, that was getting the three kiddos. <laughs> um, and so professionally, I became a resource coordinator in March of 2014, mm-hmm. um, which was kind of during the time yeah. that uh, my youngest was, you know, coming back to our home. So it required, you know, talking to you know, my supervisor and and district director, as well as the commissioner and um, getting permission kind of all up the line <laughs> to, yeah. to have her come live with us. And was that part of your decision to become a resource coordinator? How did that decision come about? Um, so I think, you know, some of it was I enjoyed being a foster parent and an adoptive parent and mm-hmm. um wanted to keep my foot in that world and, you know, and um, wanted to connect with other foster parents. So it was, it's a great way to do that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Kathy, I'm wondering how your foster and adoptive journey has influenced you in your role as a resource coordinator. Yeah, um, it does every single day, all day. So, um, you know, I often wear kind of two hats during the day. Um, You know, I wear my resource coordinator hat, um, but lots of times I wear my foster mom, adoptive mom, bio mom hat. And I think that um, having the ability to kind of have both of those roles really Mm -hmm. helps in that you know, I, I get it. I understand what foster parents go through, what yeah. that journey is like, the the joys and the challenges and um, the ups and the downs. So, you know, I think it, it helps people, um, you know, know that I've been there in that process with them. So, yeah. yeah. You must have a very large closet for all of the hats that you're wearing. <laughs> <laughs> So we know that the majority of children and youth who come into state's custody have experienced trauma, both in their families of origin and unfortunately through the system's intervention. What are the main things you've learned about parenting a child or youth impacted by trauma and how has that understanding changed through the years? It's a great question. Um, So both of my adopted daughters um, have uh, very similar diagnoses. They're diagnosed with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, as well as complex developmental trauma. Those were words that I had no idea what they meant when especially my oldest came into my home and so had to really quickly figure that out. Um, And for me, that kind of started with, you know, I was used to parenting my birth daughter, but none of the stuff that I typically did for her worked for my oldest. And so I was constantly at a loss, you know, as yeah. to, you know, how to, she had some pretty 
negative behaviors. And so, you know, wanting to change those behaviors and, um, you know, none of that stuff that I think parents typically do, right? The timeouts, the reward chart, the grounding, the taking away of privileges, like none of that worked. Um, And so, you know, I really was struggling and started reaching out and started doing research and, really wanted to understand, like, why wasn't this working? Yeah. Um, you know, it wasn't working for her and it wasn't working for me. Um, and so I really, I, you know, started reaching out to um, schools, to her therapist, to um, to the foster care system, like to anybody that would listen mm-hmm. to learn about, like, help me help her. Um, and so I started learning about trauma, like what it what it was, why it mattered, you know, for her and for me, mm-hmm. um, you know, what she needed from me as a parent um, to help her address her trauma. And so I think, you know, one of the the things that I probably naively thought is, right, that love fixes everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could just love the trauma out of her. And <laughs> um, it, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> and it took me a really long time to figure that out. Um, mm-hmm. But I needed to learn what she needed from me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those things really were um, to be an advocate for her, Um you know, that I was, so for both of my girls, I was their fifth placement um, when they came to me. So she, they all needed to know that, you know, I wasn't going anywhere, that I, no matter what they did or what they said, that I was always going to be there. Um, yeah. Sometimes probably they didn't want me there, <laughs> right? Um, but I wasn't going to walk away. I wasn't going to leave them. They needed me to advocate for them, to tell the world what they needed because they couldn't at that point in their lives tell people what they needed. Mm. Um, they needed for me to provide stability and consistency, you know, for them to really understand that I said what I meant and I meant what I said. Mm-hmm. You know, if I said, hey, we're going to go get ice cream, you know, at the end of the day, then we had to go get ice cream at the end of the day. Um you know, that they always knew that I was going to be honest with my words. Mm-hmm. Um, they they needed to know that they were safe in my home um, and not just physically safe, but emotionally safe and, you know, everything. And I think that probably out of everything took the longest for them yeah. to understand. Um, and they needed me to understand what trauma was, even though they didn't, you know, like, mom, I need you to learn what trauma is. They're not going to tell you that, but they need you to understand, or they needed me to understand what their trauma was and how it presented for them. Mm -hmm. And then it looks different, right? Trauma looks different for an eight-year-old versus a 10-year-old versus a 16-year-old, and now a 22-year-old, almost 23-year-old. Like, it just looks and presents itself really differently, yeah. And so I've had to adjust my parenting throughout the years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I parent all three of my children very differently because they have different needs, right. um, which sometimes has looked like it wasn't fair or, you know, wasn't equal between the three of them. 
but it wasn't about being equal. It was about giving each of my girls what they needed. So I think that, um, you know, for me, I needed to learn, do a whole lot of learning about what trauma was and then how trauma impacted them and their lives and our family. Mm -hmm. Kathy, I'm so glad that you said, um, you know, you thought you could love it. You know, like if you just love them, um, <laughs> yeah. that, you know, you could love the trauma out of it. Um, another thing that I hear foster parents say a lot is, I don't understand why these behaviors are happening because the trauma is mm. not happening anymore. So yep. I'm just wondering, you know, for the maybe the newer foster parents that might be listening today, um, do the behavior, behavioral or emotional issues that arise related to trauma, does it... Do you always know that it's related to trauma or is that sometimes confusing? No, you don't always know. I think um, just like every parent that's out there that you second guess everything you do, um, you know, you want to know if you did it right or if you screwed up. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, those are the times that you reach out, right? You talk to your resource coordinator, you talk to the pediatrician, you talk to the child's therapist, you talk to your therapist, um, you know, you do your own research to really be able to tease out, like, is that developmentally appropriate for all eight-year-olds are going to do that? Or is that trauma that this eight-year-old is specifically doing? Um, and, I, you know, the longer you're with that child, the more you're going to understand them and their development and their personality. And so I think it becomes a little bit easier over time to figure out like, yep, that's not normal development <laughs> and that's trauma. And let's address that in a way that meets their needs. So it sounds like really becoming an expert on what trauma impacts look like in terms of your child's emotions and behavior and understanding how that changes over time is pretty crucial. It sounds like you have to be quite a detective absolutely, um, and really gain a lot of information and understanding. How has that influenced the way you made sure your kids' needs were met by the other people and the systems in their lives? You mentioned advocacy earlier. Yeah. I wonder how that plays in. Yeah. So like I said, um, for both of my daughters, I was their fifth placement. Um, you know, they moved a lot, especially my oldest. Um, she was eight and she was taken into custody at three. So, you know, five years um, of placement changes, respite people, you know, mm -hmm. back and forth to bio moms. That's really hard. Yeah. Um, and so I think for, you know, the only consistent person in all of that time was the social worker in her life. Mm -hmm. um, but pretty quickly, I became the person who understood her and not only knew her behaviors, but knew, you know, what what her, her joys were, what made her really happy, um, you know, what really she struggled with. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, so it, I felt like once I understood those, that it was my job to advocate for both of them in the bigger world because mm -hmm. they couldn't do that for themselves, especially, you know, not at eight years old. Yeah. Um, so say for my oldest, she really presented um, with lots of anxiety in out in the world. Um, and so, you know, I always felt like it was my job to help her out to help her be able to, to be successful out in the bigger world. So, mm -hmm. you know, things like she, for years and years and years, needed to know 
if we were leaving the house, where we were going, what time mm-hmm. we would be back, who we were going to go with, you know, what we were mm-hmm. going to do when we were there, that that was her hypervigilance. That was mm-hmm. her way of keeping her body safe, you know, if she knew everything that was going to happen. So being able to sit down with her ahead of time and say, you know, we're going to go to Grammy and Grandpa's and we're, you know, we're going to be there for a couple of hours and we're going to have dinner and we're going to be the only people there and then we're going to come home. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she she needed that much information because nobody had ever given it to her. She was always just told, like, get in the car, we're leaving kind of thing, mm-hmm. which right. made her anxiety worse. Um, you know, things like with school, you know, instead of just sending her on the first day, we spent weeks and weeks before school started going into the building, um, we got her schedule ahead of time so that we could walk through every single day. Mm-hmm. You know, this is where your locker is. This is where you can put your stuff. This is where the bathrooms are. This mm-hmm. is how the lunch line's going to work. Um, you know, all of those routines and schedules so that Again, it could ease her anxiety and help heal that trauma. Um, You know, my job also was to interface with the adults in her life. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and especially with school, that meant doing um, lots and lots of meetings kind of ahead of school. So pulling together um, meetings with all of her teachers, the special educator, the principal, you know, kind of anybody who would come in contact with her um, mm-hmm. and really helping them understand that she has trauma and this is why. Yeah. Um, and for her, it meant um, not touching her, that mm-hmm. she had learned at a very young age that touch was bad and it hurt. And so she was completely unable to have anybody touch her, you know, a teacher standing behind her and putting their hand on her shoulder for her would send her into a panic attack where Mm -hmm. another child, you know, might be okay with that. Um, But for them to really understand, like, don't touch her. (laughs) (laughs) If she asks you, it's one thing, but, but don't just, you know, like put your hand on her shoulder or put your hand on her back to help her or something like that. Like, don't do that. Um, because, you know, then I would get the phone call and have to leave work to go into school to help calm her down because mm-hmm. she could not kind of refocus after having, you know, it used to bring her back to when she was being hurt. So, mm-hmm. um, again, it was my job to interface with the adults in her life so that they understood, um, you know, that meant coaches and, um, you know, her friends, parents. Um, it meant talking to my family, really, and helping them understand, like, mm-hmm. why does she do that or why doesn't she do that? Mm-hmm. Um, again, it meant advocating for things like no homework um, mm-hmm. because working on family and attachment was way more important than working on math. Um, you know, that, uh, she needed to be able to sit and play a game with me and help me cook dinner and, you know, go out in the garden or whatever it was. She needed to be able to do that so that she and I could attach to each other and not, not be figuring out homework. You know, and as she got older, that advocacy looks different for both of my girls, right? It's a little bit different, you know, again, talking to an eight-year-old's teacher versus like, you know, a senior in high school and what do they need? Um, You know, advocating for things like uh, both of my girls 
were not comfortable with um, lots of men. And so making sure she had, they both had a female dentist and a female Mm -hmm. pediatrician, um, making sure that like when they were learning to drive, that that person was a woman that was sitting next to them in the car. Um, You know, all, all kind of the little things like that, but they add up to children being able to be successful. Um, and that was always my goal was, can they be successful doing this? Mm-hmm. Um, so, and you know, I think for foster parents and adoptive parents to be okay with leaving situations where their children cannot be successful, um, that I had to learn that it was okay to do that, you know, to pick up the toys at grandma and grandpa's and say, we're leaving um, because that's what they needed. And so... You know, I think, again, that's being, again, what I always felt like was my job was to be an advocate for them. And if they were having a really hard time at a friend's house or at family's house to pick up and leave and go so that they could be successful. So, um, you know, I think as an RC um, or a resource coordinator, that I feel like it's my job to advocate for foster families. Um you know, and I think that looks different depending on each family. Um, you know, that some families need me to help talk to the social worker um, and talk to them about, you know, finding respite or, um, you know, doing this training or, um, you know, celebrating with foster families, all the really great things that kids do. Um, you know, reminding foster families that um, children make lots and lots of gains. And sometimes it's hard to see that when you're right in the middle of parenting. Um, but they do that, you know, children always make gains. And so, um, you know, I feel like, it's a great role for me to be able to advocate for other foster and adoptive families again, because I, I get it. Um, and I understand how wonderful it is and how challenging it is. And, um, you know, that we all need somebody in our corner. So it sounds like having caring people who understand what you're going through and, and this is probably even more crucial, can step in and lend a hand and a heart um, is a necessary ingredient for taking care of yourself in all of this, right? Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about how community, family, and other supportive relationships make a difference for you um, and the kin foster and adoptive parents you support? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think having... Um, community members. So whether that's like your resource coordinator that you can call and say, hey, I really need respite, (laughs) Um, you know, or other foster parents that you can reach out to or other adoptive parents that you can reach out to, you know, maybe if it's not respite, just to have a conversation with somebody who understands like, you know, my child is really struggling. They've had three visits this week with bio mom and dad, and they're having a hard time with that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, your family might not understand what that means, but another foster family does or another mm-hmm. adopted family does. And so having those, that population of people to be able to reach out to, I think is really, really important. Mm-hmm. Um, again, having lots and lots and lots of training mm-hmm. <laughs> um, to understand you know, why kids are doing what they're doing yeah. and then how you can respond to it and to know that, you know, they're not behaving that way. It's not personal, um, you know, that it's their trauma speaking. Um, you know, I think it's it's just super important for foster families to have 
their own kind of, you know, things that fill up their bucket or fill up their cup. Um, but also, you know, how do you, how do you do that? Um, so, and it, it takes some practice. (laughs) Kathy, I've heard, um, other foster and adoptive parents say that their families or maybe even their friends don't always understand or have compassion for people who are on this journey that you have been on. Do you have any words of wisdom um, for those foster and adoptive parents to help them bring their family and friends on board? Yeah. Um, I think lots of people who, um, you know, say that they, they don't understand um, it's because they they don't know, right? They have never seen a foster child or they've never spent time with them. Um, they don't understand a biological family situation um, and what brought them to kind of um, to be where they are. And so I think um, educating people, you know, becomes a, a foster parents or an adoptive parent's job to, you know, that it's not a foster child's fault that they are in foster care. Um, and they are lovable and wonderful, amazing human beings who need people to help them. Um, and so I think education about, you know, what, what the foster care world is and what it means for children. Um, and, you know, what trauma means for those kids and that, Again, it's not a personal thing like, you know, little, little guy isn't, you know, behaving that way to tick mm-hmm. off grandma. <laughs> yeah. you know? They're doing it because of their trauma. So mm-hmm. um, I think it's really important to be able to educate people about what foster care is and what it's also not, you know, that it's not a child's fault that, um, you know, but that lots of children do go home um, and are reunified with bio family mm-hmm. and those that can't be need forever homes. Um, and so, yeah, I think just education, education, education. Yeah. Right. One of the many hats in your closet, right? That's right. <laughs> You're a trauma expert and educator. And, you know, and, and it sounds like having to raise um, your ability to have uh, empathy and compassion for yourself, empathy and compassion for your kids, and, and then extend that to the folks in their lives so that you can respond when those folks aren't being particularly helpful, right? Like, hey, here's what's going on for my child and here's why it looks like what it looks like and I can understand how that's frustrating and here's what my child needs um, and it's not a personal yep. thing. So even kind of raising that compassion for the person who who you're trying to help understand what's going on and how to interact in Absolutely. a more healthy yeah. way, right? Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. That's a cowboy hat. I think that one's a cowboy <laughs> hat. <laughs> oh my gosh. So um, we need to wrap up today's episode in a minute. But before we say goodbye, I wanted to give you a chance to share some parting words of wisdom with our listeners Oh, um, gosh. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, we all, and, and it doesn't have to be this huge. You've, you've given us so much, you know, profound, good information. So no worries at all. But if you had to distill it down to one nugget, what is that nugget you'd like anyone listening who either is uh, or wants to be or works with kin, foster and adoptive caregivers? 
What's that one thing that you know now that you wish you knew back when you started this journey that you can leave with them today? That's a great question. Um, I think the importance of understanding trauma, um, you know, and again, you love goes a long way and everybody needs love, but you can't love the trauma out of them. Mm. <laughs> um, and so to inform yourself, you know, have lots of trainings, have lots of conversations um, about what trauma is and what trauma is over the lifetime of a child. Um, and so that you can parent successfully a child long term. Mm -hmm. And so even though your your daughters are adults now, you're still parenting, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it does not end at 18. Parenting oh, is, God, no. right? <laughs> it's a lifelong it relationship. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. So, Kathy, thank you so much for those words of wisdom and um, all of the hard-won insights you've shared with us today. We appreciate you being with us here today and all the support you give to your own family and to the Ken Foster and adoptive parents in Vermont. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for having me. It was great. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much, Kathy. Thanks for listening. If you have any ideas about topics that you want us to cover or episodes that you're interested in hearing, shoot us a message. You can reach me by email at cassie.gillespie at uvm.edu or you can leave us a comment on the webpage where you downloaded this podcast. Welcome to the Field is produced by the Vermont Child Welfare Training Partnership and the State of Vermont. And a special thank you to Brickdrop for composing and recording our music. See you next time.